Welcome to TalkScript, a superset of a podcast about JavaScript. The presenting sponsor of TalkScript is SitePen, a JavaScript consultancy helping companies improve their apps, tools, and teams. Check it out at sitepen.com. Let's find out if TalkScript is your type of podcast. Welcome to another episode of the TalkScript podcast. I'm your host, Brian Forbes. I have with me today, Neil Roberts. I'm just happy to be here. James Milner. Hello, yeah, I'm a JavaScript engineer at SitePen. And we have a special guest, Jan Kaban from Esri. Yeah, thanks for having me today. We'll let Jan introduce himself in just a few minutes. First, I want to hand it over to James to give us some uh, TypeScript community updates. So yeah, this uh, week's podcast is a big TypeScript announcement is the 3.2 release. We talked about this a little bit last time, but... There's some really cool, interesting features in there. I think the most notable one in there is the um, strict bind call apply flag, which means that you can, like TypeScript can infer the types when you use bind call and apply. Neil, I think you're the, the biggest TypeScript buffed. Can you give a bit of insight on kind of why why that's maybe beneficial? Yeah, we, we kind of talked about what TypeScript had done by allowing rest arguments in functions to be generic types and some of the other kind of tuple changes that they had made. And I guess one of the things we kind of speculated about is that this lets us kind of extract the function arguments from the function as a generic, and then we can use it to do things like make it so that call and apply can use that same tuple extracted from the function arguments to say what arguments it should accept. So we kind of have been thinking we might see this for a while, but really it just makes it so that with call and apply, which are basically the identical, it's just different structures of the same call. But, you know, we can call functions in a different context and keep our type checking abilities with TypeScript. That's another example of how TypeScript continually adds ways of enforcing static type checking throughout every area of the system where we might see it. And I guess that's good because, I mean, depending on how you write your code, a lot of people are still, well, they use bind, call, and apply all over the place, right? So... Yeah, definitely a win for TypeScript developers, I think. Mm-hmm. Would you, is there anything else in that release that you think is a, a real standout? I, I mean, I think defined property kind of fits in that same area too, right? Where it's similar to what they're doing with call and apply, where we're saying certain properties might be defined at runtime and it's able to actually do static analysis on them and enforce whatever type has been added through defined property to an, to an object. Yeah, for sure. No, it seems like a like a pretty uh, substantial update in terms of, you know, like um, making the general type checking more robust throughout your code. Cool. So I think yeah, that's kind of the major announcement is that three point two release. So uh, should we move on to our, our next section, Neil? Yeah, I mean, I'm also kind of excited about the the generic spread expressions as well, which I think is going to clean up code a lot. Mm, yeah, uh, and even the rest of variables. Uh, I mean, those two kind of fit hand in hand where. One of the things that I've tried to mess with in terms of creating more robust types for kind of what we're doing in Dojo and, and some of what we're doing at, at SitePen itself is doing things like manipulating keys within object types. And we did that before through pick and exclude and, and some other kind of generic types that shipped with TypeScript. And now what they're doing is they're making it so that there's actually a more defined syntax for it where we end up with real types not simply types with generics applied to them. Mm-hmm. 
So like rest will allow us to kind of pick off certain keys and values from a type. And the spread expressions will allow us to combine types. Whereas before we would do that just with... You have to do it manually. Yeah, like union operators. And with, in terms of autocomplete, those would look kind of ugly. It would say like this type is T and U, or this is pick T with these keys on it. So these kind of give us... What we're doing is actually we're actually creating new types that should look much better in autocomplete. The nice thing about the generic ex- spread expressions, et cetera, is they'll be able to infer those and you won't have to manually write out your your return expression. Yeah, that, so, I mean, that's going to be really cool as well. It's a big win. So, yep. All right. Thanks, James, for getting us up to date on that. Neil, I think you have something fun for us. Yeah, we're going to play some truthy falsy. And this week with Jan as our guest, we are going to be talking about map stuff. So what I've done is I've gathered four articles about map-related things. And we're going to go through, I'm going to have Jan answer them last, because he's the expert here on maps. Uh, and I'll kind of switch between Brian and James. And you're going to have to guess whether this is true or false, and then I'll, I'll reveal which one's true or false. All right. All right. All right. So my first article here is about the city of Medicine Hat. Cities across the United States and Canada have taken advantage of rebranding or reinventing the overall character of a city to attract new businesses, investors, and workers. This process has resulted in both great successes and failures, but the main goal is universal, a desire to put themselves on the map. GIS is an integral component of rebranding in terms of planning, but many of these cities overlook the ability to use GPS in a public-facing and community-engaging way. When places want to reformat the way they're seen... It would benefit them to incorporate maps into their websites, applications, and other branded materials like brochures. Take into consideration the city of Medicine Hat in Alberta, Canada. Their website has bright visuals and a wide array of information for those interested in the area. What you'll notice is that they include GIS into this website, giving it its own page entirely. They have a section of their website under their Information and Computer Services entitled GIS Mapping. But Medicine Hat took things a step further by introducing a city planning effort to reflow some of the roads on the outskirts of the city to make the roads and surrounding area appear on the map in the shape of, you guessed it, a large hat. On the GIS mapping page, you'll find a brief explanation of GIS, eliminating any potential misunderstanding. But what you'll also find is their iMap, centered on the prominent hat, in this case hosted by ArcGIS Online. This iMap has a large variety of tools that can help both newcomers and longtime residents learn more about the city with important information like school locations, a section on land for sale, as well as a helpful toolbar explaining how to utilize the map. So Brian, do you want to take a a stab here and tell me whether this is true or false? All right. Well, because Canada is a mythical land, (laughs) I'm going to go with false. Okay. Uh, What do you say, James? Just sounds a bit far-fetched to me. Like, I don't know... I don't know if it's a great strategy to rebuild your roads to match the name or even the other way around. So yeah, I think I'm going to go with false. Okay. Jan? Yeah, I'm going to go with false too. Uh, you guys got me. It's false. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> it's all true except for the road reflows. They do have a page on their website dedicated to GIS. Here we go. Second article. Sandy Island has long appeared on maps dating back to the early 20th century. This island was supposedly located in the Pacific Ocean, northwest of Australia, in the Coral Sea. It first appeared on an edition of a British admiralty map in 1908, proving that Sandy Island had been discovered by the French in 1876. Even some modern maps show the presence of an island at its coordinates. 
Sandy Island is roughly the size of Manhattan. It is about three miles wide and 15 miles long. However, there is one problem. The island does not actually exist. Back in October 2012, an Australian research ship undiscovered the island. When the ship arrived at Sandy Island's supposed coordinates, they found nothing but ocean a mile deep. One of the ship's crew members, Stephen Micklewaith, said they all had a good laugh as they sailed through the island. All right, James, you want to take this one first? What, whether, is this, so the question is whether the island actually exists or not. Well, whether this story is true or false. Okay, okay. I mean, you said it was the size of Manhattan, and I, I, I just, I don't know, I struggle with the belief that something like that would go like so long without it being undiscovered or without it being come like coming to the conclusion that it doesn't exist with like satellite imagery or just I don't know ships just passing through like I don't know it sounds it sounds a bit far-fetched for me so I'm gonna go with false okay it just sounds it just sounds true and I want to believe it so I'm gonna go true all right yeah because I want to get some points yeah, I think it's true too. I wouldn't be surprised that old maps recorded information that just a misjudgment at that time. Yeah, it is true. Oh, they <laughs> it was it was mapped a long time ago and still appears on a bunch of GIS data, suggesting that it's actually a real island, even though uh, it has been proven that it does not exist. I think maybe I'm too skeptical. I think that's my problem there. <laughs> Well, so I would Jan, be the sort Jan's of gonna person. Go, Jan's going to have to go back and update the database. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't. I don't think they, they have a problem. No, I'm the sort of person that might put four things that are all false. So <laughs> you never know. Yeah, <laughs> I was going to say like I read somewhere that they used to like people who made globes used to put like false information on the globes because it would be like if somebody copied them, they'd know that they'd been copied. If that makes sense. Sounds right. <laughs> I hope this hasn't like jumped one of your questions. Uh, next article here. There's a Lithuanian proverb that says, for every head, a hat. Nathan Woodrow has captured this attitude with his QGIS plugin called QGIS Hats. The QGIS Hats plugin is a bit of fun that accomplishes no other purpose than to add a hat to the QGIS icon. Load QGIS and then click on Plugins Manage and install plugins from the top menu. In the window that appears, search the QGIS plugin repository for QGIS Hats. Now click on the Install Plugin button to install the plugin. You should see a status message at the top of the window indicating that the plugin has been successfully installed. Now verify that the plugin is putting a hat on your QGIS icon by taking a look at the shortcut. The QGIS shortcut icon should be wearing the designated hat for December. Brian, you want to take this one uh, first now? This just sounds ridiculous. <laughs> and so this is this is an application like a like a desktop application. Yeah. It's a plugin that puts a hat on your icon. On your icon on QGIS. Is this a Mac or a Windows application? I think it's both. All right, I'm going to say false. James? So, like, I used to use this application in a previous life, and I feel like it's the kind of thing that would be true because I think there's a lot of... It's like an open source project, and I think there's a lot of fun little Easter eggs in there. Anyway, I might be wrong. I don't know. I think I'm going to go with with uh, with true. Okay, Jan. I follow James on that. I think that story is too too elaborated to be false. It's true. Yeah. A, <laughs> <laughs> you can even add your own hats to the repository of of hats that go on the QGIS icon. All right. Fantastic. So, so the score is what? I think Jan. I'm keeping ahead. track. You. 
I, I, <laughs> I think. I think Jan's ahead. Do you get minus points being wrong? No, just no points for being wrong. Okay. No points for being wrong. <laughs> well, we got one the, for being right. Yeah, we all got the first one right. James got the second one wrong, and I got this one wrong. So Jan's three. James and I are two. All right. All right. Last article. The burial of the deceased is a sensitive topic in most countries. All the more, this makes understanding the spatial and social properties of cemeteries important for planning purposes. In modern cemeteries and cities, space limitations have created a need for additional planning. This is particularly the case in societies that often require full burial rather than cremation. In Malaysia, GIS has shown the potential as a tool for cemetery management to determine efficient use of space. This helps to then keep track of individuals in a cemetery and also update cemetery layouts based on population growth. As science and social norms shift, cemeteries are able to automatically reflow plots in unused areas using GIS tools. In some areas of the UK, where natural burials are becoming a more acceptable concept and trees or plants are used to replace headstones, cemeteries have begun promoting this type of burial as a way to save space. Using the parameters required for natural burials to be possible, Data in a GIS can be used to locate natural burials in cemeteries, utilizing space that would not normally have been considered as part of cemetery grounds. So I think James gets to be the first on this one. I think it sounds elaborate, but it sounds like it sounds plausible at the same time. Yeah, I think I'm going to go with true because I feel like that's quite an elaborate thing to make up. Brian? I'm with James that I think it sounds plausible, but my only question is, is full burial, is that normative in Malaysia? I remember reading an article about how in, in Thailand they, they cremate. So I'm going to go with true as well. Okay. Yeah. 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 I think, I think I would say true because uh, the tools are there to be able to do that. So, so yeah. I, I got you. It was false. <laughs> oh, darn it. So they, wow. They you're, do, you're a great storyteller, Neil. <laughs> they, well, a lot of this is from an actual article. So they do use GIS tools to do planning for where to put new cemeteries and to figure out whether they're going to need to set aside space for cemeteries, but they don't use GIS to automatically reflow plots because most people have actually booked the plot that they're going to be using during their... Uh, during their okay, okay. So the, the GIS, it was in the details. Yeah, they don't use it to reflow cemeteries. They, they might use it to plan new cemeteries. Okay, okay. All right, Neil. I see what's happened. <laughs> well, Jan won our truthy falsy. So. I believe so. Uh, Does he win points or? He's, th- he's today's winner. He's today's winner. Mm-hmm. All right. Today's <laughs> winner is yeah. Jan. All right. That's, <laughs> that's your prize. That's your prize. <laughs> All right. Well, who is this mysterious Jan individual? Jan, why don't you tell us about yourself? I'm from France. Uh, I joined A3 seven years ago. Originally, I used to develop on the in Flash and Flex. Uh, I really love that. I started web development with building uh, educational Flash applications, and then got introduced to GIS using the the Flex API that is developed by A3. And I happened to be disappointed with that API, so I contacted S3 via Twitter, and then they hired me. I moved uh, to the US in California seven years ago with my wife. And then I moved to JavaScript, I would say five years ago, to work on the JavaScript API. I think at the time, Flash was going away. Yeah, and uh, so I I designed a part of the public API, and I work a lot also on 
with data, uh, preparing data to feed to WebGL engine that we have developed in-house to display GIS data. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, so for our, kind of our listeners at home, I was wondering if you could elaborate or perhaps shed a bit more light on kind of who Esri are and kind of what they do, because they're a big company, but perhaps they're a company that not many people have heard of. Yeah. So before talking about S3, I, I, I need to talk about GIS. So it, that stands for Geographic Information Systems uh, System. And uh, so it's an information system to store and uh, visualize, analyze, and manage data that can have address uh, spatial component. So could be addresses, could be satellite imagery data, or could be coordinates, points, lines, or shapes. And a lot of industries use, have data like this, industries or governments, local, federal governments, big agencies. And so S3 is a private company that is turning 50 years old next year. And they productized a GIS. And of course, uh, in 50 years, like S3 evolved with the technology. So it started with mainframe. And uh, develop product in uh, on working on workstation, and now it's uh, uh, a lot of on the web and mobile SaaS technologies. So today, as we have like a desktop mapping application, we have developed mobile applications, but also web applications that connects to the GIS data from users that are stored either on the cloud or on their own infrastructure. And so those web applications, for example, are built on top of the of a JavaScript API, but we also provide that JavaScript API for developers if they want to build their own web mapping application. I hope I summarized it. Uh, no, I think you did a fantastic job of, of, of explaining Esri and kind of what GIS is. So it sounds like GIS has a lot of kind of interesting challenges, especially if you're trying to for example, like display maps on the web, there's kind of a lot going on there and a lot of like moving parts. So I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about like how the rough way in which you kind of build a map using the web platform or the JavaScript. Yeah, I think the challenges of, uh, so web mapping applications is that we stream a lot of content very over as the user zoom or pan on the map. I think we can relate, we can compare a map to a, a data grid. You know, if the, you don't load all the data, the million records for your data grid in one shot, you would load on demand as the user scrolls. And you will try also to be clever about the DOM elements that you will create so that you can reuse existing parts and instead of creating new ones to not blow up the memory. So there is a lot in common with that when you build a web mapping application, you try to web map, like a map component, you try to be clever about how you fetch data, like trying to fetch what is around, what the user is looking at first, and then fetching data that is further away second, and try to be also conservative as much as possible on the memory and how the browser would handle such a flow of data. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it definitely sounds like a lot of interesting and kind of maybe even unique challenges from kind of a web development perspective. So I know that the ArcGIS JavaScript API that you work on is underpinned by um, the Dojo Toolkit and historically has been for some time. 
So I was wondering if you could perhaps like shed a bit more light on the, the reasons for that and kind of how that's kind of shaped what you've done with the API. So yeah, the JavaScript API adopted pretty early Dojo Toolkit because of some key features that it was providing, like build tools and also like a, a one centralized set of browser polyfills and trying to normalize all the different browsers at the time. And uh, one of the key features that we were using was uh, Dojo X GFX to draw vector data using what was available on the browser. So either SVG or an old technology that used to be on the Internet Explorer called VML, which doesn't exist anymore, or Canvas. And so depending on what the browser had, GFX was an abstraction layer on top of that and was really helpful on that, on that part. Now we are moving completely to WebGL. We decided to own our rendering engine to be able to display more data and to be able to update it in a way that SVG cannot really understand. It was very helpful. It's still used into some of the components, like a legend component, where we still draw some vector shapes. And also a key feature of Dojo is uh, IIT NAND support uh, for all the UI. Everything that S3 develops is today translated in nearly 40 languages. So that's a pretty key feature. And I think for me, when I joined the JavaScript API team, Dojo was great for, uh, you know, like I really quickly get started building classes and, and uh, that was really helpful uh, to, to get there. So it sounds like um, Dojo GFX kind of added a kind of a nice abstraction away from maybe some quite varying and different browser APIs at the time. And you said you're kind of moving more towards WebGL as your primary kind of rendering engine. So is that something that's kind of ongoing? Or I mean, I know, for example, that you've kind of got two different versions of the JavaScript API that you're kind of maintaining, and one seems to be very WebGL-focused, and the other seems to be more Canvas-focused. Is that a kind of a, a fair statement? Yeah, so with our API, you can you can display your data into either a 2D environment, a 2D map, or a 3D environment, either a globe, well, what we call a scene. So for displaying everything in, uh, in 3D, we needed to have our 3D engine. So this is developed into our R&D center in uh, Zurich in Switzerland. And all the public API manipulating the data, it's all the same shared between 2D and 3D, but really for the rendering and the 3D capabilities, it's it's gonna, it's on that engine. And then on the 2D side, since we have a lot of code that you know work great uh, into our previous version of the API, we progressively decided to move it to WebGL. So parts by parts, and we just finished the new release that will be fully WebGL also for 2D rendering. And we made that choice really because, because designing zooming interfaces like a map, uh, SVG, we don't have any control about when the browser will repaint, but also how it caches. It do- we don't have any control about any of this. So WebGL allows us to design data structures that we can cache and reuse very quickly. So yeah, I think it's, of course, owning your rendering engine instead of relying on what the browser has is a challenge because then now you have to support all the different 
you know, browsers and limitations. And but uh, I think it's it's worth it right, on the long run. With WebGL, I mean, you what kind of time period before WebGL came out was it before you decided to start moving towards that as as kind of a possible output or, or rendering target? Were you quite cautious in terms of adopting WebGL or were you kind of all hands-on and trying to trying to get that working? Yeah, it's it's difficult also. Like it's it's also a project management question, like what do you want for what will be the requirements for the users, what kind of browser and machine they will have to run on. So that was the cautious part. We have the chance to have a, a mature, stable version three of the API that is not fully relying on WebGL. So users, they can still use that API for non-WebGL environment. But for uh, to move forward, we needed to, we needed to modernize and go fully WebGL even for the 2D part. Then, then of course, there are some changes that we had to do, like, for example, to display images on the DOM. You don't really need to have any cores. You can, you can just display the images, but then WebGL requires you to have access to the individual pixels of the images. So, so we had to change the API to that used to not require cores to now require cores. And, and this is enforced. So these changes happens over time. We release four times a year. So, you know, every, every release we, we added more changes and more support to WebGL. And then this last release, we completely finished everything. And yeah, it's going to be interesting. For sure. So, I mean, relatively, I guess WebGL is not a, a super kind of new technology, but something that I guess is kind of a bit more on the newer side and gaining a bit of traction is um, WebAssembly. And I think I'm right in saying that you're actually using WebAssembly um, in the in the kind of newer API that you talked about. And I was wondering if you could just kind of talk a little bit around using WebAssembly and kind of if you've hit any stumbling blocks or any interesting challenges in, in, in using that. Yeah, so one of the features, uh, when you do web mapping, a lot of people, they know about longitude and latitude, but then those are angles on, those represent angles on, on, on the earth. And then when you display them on the map, on the flat map, you need to project what we call project those points to a different coordinate system. And we call that a projection. And one of the key features of ArcGIS uh, is to be able to project coordinates that are in a specific coordinate system to another coordinate system. And traditionally, and for years, this to make those transformations, those mathematical operations, we used to do a call to a server. And using WebAssembly, we were able to compile that library, server-side library that is written in C and uh, bring it to the web browser. And so it has great advantage because now you don't have to do server-side call. You can then process much more data that you don't need to transfer over to a server and back. And so that was great for that for us. On the challenge side is that that library also relied on a lot of external data. So we needed to try to work our way to compile it to a manageable WebAssembly module. And then, of course, uh, it's not supported on IE11. So when you try to execute those on the public API, when you try to execute those operations, then we would just reject the call and say, you know, then you would have to go to a server uh, as the fallback. 
So I think, you know, it's a nice progressive enhancement. You still have the old way to do it or the a way to do it for i11, but if you decide to go and not su support i11, then you can definitely uh, uh, yeah, use those WebAssembly modules. And could you give us any insight into kind of how that maybe affects your bundle or if you do any kind of code splitting to load that dynamically or like how do you handle that WebAssembly component? Yeah, it's 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 part of another project in-house and then the module is compiled there and then we uh, we just uh, dumped uh, the, the, the compiled binary into the code base and then there is a TypeScript API on top of that to check if the module is supported, if WebAssembly is supported and then load on demand uh, the module if needed. Right. Cool, that makes sense. So could you potentially give us some insight into kind of the size of the teams that work on the ArcGIS JavaScript API? Is there a lot of you or...? Yeah, so I had to ask around recently about this because uh, it's very hard to know how much we are. So we are around 40, but then we are divided. Part of the team, all the 3D engineering is done in uh, Zurich in Switzerland. And then in Redlands, we have a, a core team and then a lot of contributors that works into domain-specific teams like symbology or satellite imagery, and then they want to bring features to the JavaScript API, so they contribute too. So I think we are pretty much like around 40 between developers and designers and product engineers and those external contributors. So it's, I would say it's a rather small team for what we do. And so you were saying that you have teams that are not even across departments, but also globally distributed there. So is there a lot of kind of international collaboration like is that is that difficult is that something you you have to manage or yeah like uh, this podcast we have to uh, meet early in the morning with the Zurich guys and otherwise we have like some people working in the US remotely and Esri also has different development center in the US one is uh, in Olympia near Seattle uh, another one in Portland Washington DC so so yeah we tried you know meet whenever uh, whenever everybody is awake. For sure. Something that we're a big fans of here at SitePen is um, TypeScript. So I was wondering if you could talk about your use of TypeScript at Esri. Is that something that you're using and leveraging or is there still some resistance to moving to Type JavaScript? Yeah, no, we, uh, we moved to TypeScript. We started converting the API in 2015. Uh, it was around like version 1.6. And so we migrate every uh, we migrate modules to TypeScript between each release a little bit more, and we are around the code base is around ninety one percent ninety percent converted to TypeScript. I think for me right now it's so convenient to be able to massively refactor the API, and you know like the compiler will everything will settle down when I will move finish moving every pieces around so. So that's very uh, convenient. And then also for our users, since it's a commercial API, we don't distribute the source code and our users, they can use the typings to be productive into using the API. So we generate the typings from the public documentation. We even embed like some JSDoc comments and link to the SDK page. So I think, I mean, it, it makes everybody, I feel it makes everybody more productive. And that's great, even internally at Esri uh, for the for the app developers. 
And did you have any uh, kind of pushback when you were talking about using TypeScript or was it pretty like universal agreement that it was a good idea? No, I think on the API side, I mean, everybody has, a, it's a steep learning curve at the beginning. You don't really understand why the compiler uh, tells you, but I think once you get comfortable, uh, everybody that starts building apps with the Forex API is very, very happy about the, uh, the comfort that uh, Visual Studio Code and the typings of the API brings, I think. Uh, so I've got a, a kind of a, a bit of a fun question for you here. So I've, I've heard some rumors that you are a fan of editing your code in the Chrome Sources tab. And I was just wondering if you could uh, kind of either confirm or deny if this is the case or... Yeah, I used to, uh, when I moved uh, to JavaScript, I was looking for an ID. I, I was lazy. I didn't want to ask for a license for IntelliJ or any commercial ID. I was looking for the for something I could install on every machine very fast. And I discovered that the dev tools you can link, you can create workspaces in dev tools where you link a folder. You just add a folder from your own file system to dev tools, and then you do a network link from a network resource to the corresponding file on the system. And it was great. I really loved it, especially it has very neat features like Chrome automatically detect when the file changes. So if you have a breakpoint and the execution is stopped and you modify the function, you save it and automatically Chrome will restart the execution of the function. So it was uh, it's lots of magic. It was great. What made it change was uh, Visual Studio Code, I think. Uh, moving to TypeScript and VS Code was, uh, yeah, was pretty good at that. I'm pretty comfortable using DevTools, it's, it's, I think it, they do a nice job there. Yeah, for sure. I can definitely kind of see the appeal with kind of live editing stuff. I think that's, can, could be quite powerful. I mean, I've never personally done it, but, and yeah, I mean, I'm personally a huge fan of VS Code. I use it for pretty much everything, but I know that Brian is, is a, is a Vim guy. I was trying to bite my tongue and I, <laughs> I like my buttons. Yeah, so I like I, clicking I like, on I stuff. Like, uh, I like exiting. Exiting? What's yeah. that? <laughs> leave it running all it's time. just uh, three random keys. Just any of them. <laughs> uh, yeah. So perhaps for a more kind of serious question, the ArcGIS JavaScript API is, is kind of a, a commercial library. I was just wondering what's kind of your approach to managing kind of third-party code that goes into that? So are you very kind of cautious with using external code or is it kind of like, do you have any kind of processes that help manage that or are you, you quite liberal about it? Yeah, totally. We, uh, we are pretty cautious about that. The, in general, what we do is uh, we embed the libraries inside the API and then we have the copyright exposed. But yeah, we discuss adding any new libraries some of them are also other commercial libraries. So there are license agreements. We have a team also dedicated to checking the different licenses and dependencies of uh, a said library. And then us as developers, yeah, we vet all the, the libraries that goes in. But in general, it's pretty, we don't have a lot of them. I think we have like, we have some polyfills. Uh, we use a pointer event polyfill from jQuery, intersection observer polyfill. And then it's a lot of, mathematical libraries like GL matrix, which is very popular for like to do operations on matrices, which is, uh, 
key when you build a, a WebGL and 3D environment and so on. And then uh, some utilities, like uh, there is a, a nice library to compute the position of the sun based on the time of the day, of any date. Uh, it's called SunCalc and uh, Moment also for date manipulations. It's very concise. We try to, we tend to do more and more development in-house because we have more developers for it. But when something is widely used and uh, very reliable, yeah, we don't hesitate to embed it into the API. Maquette also, maquette for uh, virtual DOM. Cool. And do you use any kind of like um, security auditing tools at all? Like do you use, I don't know, even NPM audit or sneak or any of, anything like that? No, not really, because we don't really have uh, so many dependencies from, from NPM. Right, sure. How do you do the updates on those? Uh, it's manual process. You probably, you kind of look at and make sure that there's no big changes that are going to break your code and no security yeah. problems as you do that. Yeah, exactly. I think as soon as, uh, you know, it works and it's, uh, we have also all our test suite build. Uh, so as long as the library works and uh, yeah, there, there is no reason going really uh, updating it. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, for example, GLmetrix, we had uh, two versions of the API and uh, two major versions of the API. So with a lot of breaking changes. So the 3D engine was using the older version we were using in 2D, the newer version. And so there, there is yeah, some work to try to just like remove one dependency and so on. But yeah, as long as it works. <laughs> That's the important yeah. thing. Yeah. Great. I'm just conscious of the time. So I'm thinking um, perhaps we should be moving on to our next section, which is with Brian. Yeah. This is a section where we ask for tips and tricks. Do you guys have any tips and tricks, something that I don't know or that our listeners might not know? In, in life or? <laughs> you know, let's go anywhere in life on... In development okay in development well i've been using web workers a lot recently so i can tell you a little bit about that so i did some tests on on chrome and so creating and destroying web workers is actually quite a cheap process so well at least on my laptop it was kind of like sub millisecond so a lot of people think that spinning up and destroying web workers is costly but it's it's uh, doesn't actually seem to be as far as i can tell and similarly, if you are uh, sending data around between workers, it's like if you send a lot of data, obviously it's, it's it's pretty substantial in terms of the amount of time. But for kind of, I like I think I did a test where it's like if you send a key, an object with about like a like less than ten thousand keys, I think it was kind of like sub four milliseconds, which is not too bad. I think when we were talking about. Web audio. I think if you send a typed array or a buffer mm -hmm. over a web yes. worker, it actually transfers the memory over to the web, yes. web worker. So yes. it's super fast. Yeah. So I think that's a thing called um, transferables, which is, yeah, as you were saying, is, uh, but the problem is with the transferables is that you obviously lose the reference to the memory in the main thread. In so the main thread. Yeah, for sure. So you have uh, to know, you have to know that you're done with it. Right. Exactly. But it's fast. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it should be more or less instantaneous. But and there's a uh, if you use uh, the shared array buffers, um, then that's basically the same principle that you can use it from both sides. Yep. 
We also use a lot of web workers and uh, we actually load an AMD loader inside the worker so that we can load on the fly kind of any scripts and uh, yeah, I've, yeah, having a lot of fun with it, uh, I think. Neil, do you have anything that we don't know? I don't know if you don't know it. I guess maybe if you're writing a paged API and you have an SDK, you should use 408 syntax for your paged API calls, or you should support it, uh, 408 syntax for your paged API calls because it is amazing. What's it do? So like with a paged API, right, you might need to take, you say like, I'm going to page one, I'm going to page two, I'm going to page three. And making developers maintain that themselves in their for loops is a big ask and is probably just going to result in people writing infinite loops. So there's like, you know, the async await syntax normally where your function returns a promise and you wait for the promise to be fulfilled until you continue. You can use a 408 syntax where each iteration of the loop is a promise that you wait to resolve until you continue executing the for loop again. And it can terminate itself as well. So if you have a paged API, the user can just do 408, do the call, and it'll automatically do page one, page two, page three, page four for you. Gotcha. I thought you were saying 408. 408. <laughs> I was like, like the which HTTP? Yeah, 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 yeah. 408. I'm like, what does 408 Prob- do? Yeah. There's, like, <laughs> there's, someone in, there's someone in the 408 zip code that is like, oh, yeah, getting a shout out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. 408. Got it. 408. Okay. Let's see. I'm trying to see. Uh, 408 is in uh, California. So there's someone in California that's like, oh. And, then, oh, the, the, <laughs> and what's the HTTP code? Is that a legit HTTP code? Or <laughs> oh, yeah. Does anyone it's know? Error code. Like it's yeah, so that's like somebody, an obscure interview question. Yeah, there's someone in Santa Clara that's like, oh, yeah, getting a shout out. I think we're going to see we're gonna see more of this uh, for await and uh, generator, generator functions. So it's going to be, it's going to boom for sure. I think the thing is like the problem is that I see that people doing with the 408 stuff is that they like if you have like a for loop and you're awaiting it's obviously not firing off each request like concurrently right yep Mm -hmm. so you have to be careful because you end up like for example if those are a bunch of database calls then it's going to like queue them rather than just fire them off concurrently so it is i think a lot of people will just like think that they can just replace promises with 408 but it's sometimes the semantics of it slightly different and that's where, you know, as a as a person writing an SDK, you might try to support multiple uh, ways of dealing with that, where you do have one that returns an, a, a grouped promise instead of using 408. Mm. My tip is the Vim advent calendar has started. <laughs> so Wow. It sounds... I know. It's very interesting. There's been some cool articles. So the Vim advent calendar is at vimways.org. We'll put it in the show notes. So for all of our Vim users out there, which I think it's just me and Nick, but (laughs) the Vim advent calendar, they've got a tip coming out every day up through the 24th. So that's my tip for this week. That makes me think of another thing that people don't know, which is that the 12 days of Christmas starts on Christmas Day. It does. You're right. Yeah. So people that take their trees down before January 6th are bad people. Wow. Who knew? That's right. They're not officially celebrating Christmas correctly. Yeah. Christmas starts on Christmas. It doesn't end on Christmas. That's right. Yeah. So do your job. Celebrate Christmas for for 12 days. And then... Just seems excessive, Neil. I don't know why people, 
people are like, oh, Christmas is so excessive because it starts on Halloween, right? But then Christmas happens we've and they take everything done down. We've just we've we've extended Advent. It's it's front loaded. Christmas is front loaded. Yes, it should start later, and then it should go later. You should really enjoy Christmas. I agree with that. So that's our tip of the week. Enjoy yeah, things you didn't know. Neil's tip is to enjoy. Thing you Christmas. didn't know is enjoy yeah, Christmas. Neil's tip is enjoy Christmas. I mean, that's a good. That's a good life tip. Yeah, that's right. I'll, I'll yeah, I'll take that one. <laughs> All right. Well, with that, I think we're going to wrap up. Jan, thank you so much for for being on. Thanks. That was awesome. It's always great to. It's one of those little known technologies that it's everywhere, and seems like it's kind of in the background. I used to do trainings over at, at Esri for SitePen, and I remember the first one that I, I went to. You know, everybody's in there talking about GIS and maps and stuff. And I, mm-hmm. I was like, at, at the first break, I was like, okay, I know this might be a dumb question, but can somebody explain to me what GIS is? And they all looked at me like I was just just an idiot. <laughs> like, like it's, it's, you don't it's know what GIS is. It's, so, it's, it's it, it applies to so many domains that it's, it really it's very difficult to uh, summarize. Yeah, as soon as we were, as soon as somebody explained it to me, I, it was like I saw it everywhere. And then a few months later, I went to my like county auditor's web page, and they were using Esri. <laughs> so yeah, you start seeing it everywhere. Yeah, definitely. Jan, thanks for coming on. It was a pleasure having you. And with that, I think we're going to be done. We will catch you guys on the next episode of the TalkScript Podcast. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the TalkScript Podcast. You can round out your TalkScript experience by viewing our show notes, listening to past episodes, subscribing to us on Apple Podcasts, and of course, following us on Twitter at TalkScript. We record new episodes every other week. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of TalkScript, a superset of a podcast about JavaScript. We've got a good thing going on. Bye.